You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello, and welcome to the Lab Notes podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens, and today we are straying from our usual programming by welcoming an entrepreneur who is definitively not from an academic background. Mark Swinnerton is currently the founder and CEO of the energy storage startup Green Gravity, but he comes to this role with a tremendous depth of experience earned over two decades in one of Australia's largest companies, BHP. And while Mark has plenty of positive reflections on his time there, the rise to the top of the corporate ladder was not everything he imagined it would be, and ultimately his attention has shifted to the climate crisis and the rapid changes that are needed in our global energy system. So, in late 2021, Mark gave up his high-paying corporate gig and instead threw his talents and ambitions into a new venture, one which promises to offer grid-scale energy storage by raising and lowering heavy weights through disused mine shafts all across the world. And although Mark is not an academic himself, he has made a point of deeply engaging with academic partners throughout the critical early phases in Green Gravity's development. The company is now commencing a robust program of research and development that will validate the technical, social, and economic foundations of his system, ultimately shaping this promising idea into the world-beating technology that Mark knows we need. Mark Swinnerton, welcome to the Lab Notes podcast. Thank you, Leo. Wonderful to be here. So we usually let our guests start with an elevator pitch. How do you describe yourself and what you do? I would describe myself as an entrepreneur and probably an entrepreneur from the beginning. Uh, I'm a trained engineer, spent a lot of time in big business but actually I was acting as an entrepreneur the whole way through. So that's how I describe myself. And what I do now is I try and take those skills and activate them on climate and try to commercialize a technology that can actually help us break through on the climate journey we've got in front of us. Well, it's a big and important mission, Mark, and I'm really excited that we get the chance to talk about it today. But can we set the scene just quickly with your upbringing? How did you come to be in this position? So I was born in Melbourne, grew up in Canberra, and my dad uh, was a business owner. Actually, he was quite an entrepreneur himself, and uh, we had a manufacturing business the whole time I was growing up. And my first job was actually uh, working on the, the production line in a, literally a physical supply chain where before we had robotics, we would hand, I was a circuit board manufacturing, you know, someone passed the circuit board, sold us some things and passed it on. So my, my kind of early, earlier childhood was uh, grounded in physical business, entrepreneurial, um, those sorts of things. And when I finished school, I had a couple of choices. I wanted to be a, an architect, actually. I kind of liked buildings. I was either a civil engineer or an architect. And I got into RMIT to go to Melbourne. I loved Melbourne. And I happened to also score a cadetship scholarship program with um, BHP at the time. And my parents actually guided me to take the BHP cadetship, mainly because it was going to fund my university rather than them having to fund it. But uh, what a what a great decision that ended up being. So I actually moved to Wollongong uh, when I was 17 and started with um, BHP at the Paul Campbell Steelworks. And that kind of got me into a, a really different trajectory, which, which opened so many doors for me over time. And just quickly, Mark, could you take us back to that time? What was your role walking into the doors of this steel plant for the first time? Well, I was a like a... 
a cadet on the shop floor at the steelmaking area down at Port Kembla. So I was doing the production reports on a daily basis and assisting the shift bosses. I got a, a real taste for hardcore operations, uh, which led me after a few years there to actually go on to shift and run production crews. So I always framed myself as a leader, as wanting to kind of be really deliberate about my career. And so I was was quite deliberate about that and, and built certain skills quite early, uh, very much around leadership and around production management. Do you think you could put your finger on why you had leadership ambitions so early in your career? Would you put that down to your dad's influence running his own business or was there some other mentor or factors that led you to decide this was the path for you? It's a, it's a great question. I, it was, I don't think it was that. I think it was much more innate and uh, it was something that I always considered myself to be a future leader uh, from very early age and it seemed natural to me and it was something that, that um, I didn't need to second guess. It was simply a, a how should I plan and execute against that. And so I've, I've always been a big planner, I've always had career plans, uh, I, I've always uh, thought through that quite deeply and so it just seemed it came natural to me. So with his clear-eyed focus on building his own skill sets and his reputation within the organisation, it's not surprising that Mark progressively climbed the corporate ladder at BHP. But Mark's rise also came at a very disrupted time for the organisation as a whole because in the early 2000s, BHP went through two major reforms, first merging with Billiton and then later demerging the Blue Scope steelmaking business from its mining operations. My next question, I asked Mark to reflect on his experiences within BHP during that tumultuous period. My first reflection would be one of culture. Uh, the, there, was a, there was enormous cultural differences within the BHP businesses, and I experienced that moving from the steel business in late 90s or early 2000s into the iron ore business, and they were radically different cultures. And then that meshed with the, the Billiton business, which had a different culture again. And, uh, and I got to know a lot of the people who had been giving effect to that integration and I thought it was absolutely fascinating and there was a blending of very fundamentally different cultures together which in, in my view created an entirely new organisation and one that was much more nimble and uh, much more capable. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was an important lesson that financial firepower and a balance sheet is but one element. I think that was brought to bear in the BHP Billiton transaction that happened where you, you really got a, a global leader and the articulation later on from those leaders about the purpose and the value drivers, whether that was defined later and retrofitted to history or whether it was always the case, I'm not quite sure, but the merging of a very strong commercial orientation with a strong asset base and operating capability was seen as generating today's powerhouse of BHP. It's really interesting. I mean, if you go to business schools and you hear of case studies of mergers, often a, the merger of two organisations with different cultures is a recipe for disaster. That you know, cultures will clash and the, the merger will not proceed. How was it that BHP managed this successfully? Both organisations were in desperate need and had an incredible Achilles heel, but very different ones. What the merger did was it created an ability to navigate those downsides. In the case of BHP, real problems with managing complexity, real problems with lack of commercial performance and lack of understanding of what the future commercial landscape would look like. Um, the Billiton guys, they came with incredible commercial savviness, 
and big problem with South Africa inability to move money and so they had real problems with their balance sheets and I think the two coming together made a huge difference. Well, let's continue on with your personal career journey now. You went to Singapore in 2007, so probably about five years after all this had washed through the system. That seems to be a pretty formative part of your career, you know, obviously moving to a completely different culture and country yourself. Was that a big culture shock for you? How did you settle into Singapore as a place to live? It was a huge culture shock, as was moving from Wollongong to Port Hedland, actually. Uh, it was a completely different culture, a different way of life, both work and personal. And that was exactly the same again when I, when I went to Singapore. And one of the things I reflect on in my first very short period in, in Singapore, I remember this kind of really interesting event where we were in an open plan office and I hadn't really worked properly in an open plan office before, but there was a really strong set of cultural designs in the organisation at that time, which was trying to open up the culture and bring much better information, transparency and decision making. And so you sat on these desks with the different people and I'd come from years in operations and focusing on unit costs and focusing on volume. And the year prior to me going there, we'd moved the dial on our operating budget from $30, we'd moved our costs down to $29. So we'd saved the dollar with a great deal of work. And I sat next to a freight trader who was trading the freight to be able to lift the iron ore out of Port Hedland and take it to China. And he was moving the freight price in $2 increments. And so he'd moved it from $7 a tonne to $5 a tonne in the course of one conversation. And I thought, this is rather extraordinary. You've got a 1,000 people working on a dollar a tonne outcome and you've got one person on a phone call making a $2 a tonne outcome. So what that reflected to me was the importance of the broader skill set within an organisation, that operations-centric people will view operations as the start and end of everything, but very much that's not the case. Yeah. And so I, I got to learn a lot more about international business, the broader drivers of a business and how you can make or destroy huge quantities of value depending on what strategies you implement and how you do them. Yeah, and I guess that became your role with the logistics and the market analysis side. I've got to imagine that those skills now are core and new as you are starting your own startup. Very. And what I'm trying to pick out over the course of the next few questions is, is to what extent that has set you up for success mm. as a startup founder? You, you, you accumulate important skills in every role. And so while those roles accumulated different skills and at a different level, I think I'm bringing as much from my first role in Port Hedland or my role in the slab yards at Port Kembla as I do from being chief economist at BHP. And, and only because they're such mutually exclusive experiences. So I think it's really important for people to think about what experience they accumulate in any role and to be very definitive about that and say, okay, I'm in a role, I'm gonna actually go and achieve certain things while I'm in this role. I'm gonna be in it for two or three years and at the end of that time, I'm going to have one or two or three things that I'm going to be able to write down to myself and say, these are the major skills I've picked up. And they, they're additive over time. And so I, I encourage people to be really deliberate about that. So I guess we're getting to the end of your, your blue scope and industry journey now. You did come back to Australia, to Brisbane for the last parts of your career and ended up as the Vice President of Operations, which is then overseeing a significant chunk of the, the organisation. Did that type of highly leadership-oriented role fulfill all the dreams that you had had for leadership or was there still something missing? Great question. I, I, I'll reflect on a, on a conversation I had back in the early sort of maybe 2005 with then my general manager who, who I was reporting through to. I remember I came to him with a budget request. I need you know X number of more people in my department for all these great reasons. And he said to me, look, this is just fantastic logic and I get it, but I can't approve it. 
And I sort of said, well, why not? You're the big boss. And he says, this is the thing that you learn as you become more and more senior is there's always a bigger boss and there's always constraints on what you can do. And I thought that was really interesting and stuck with me. And I think that's the case, no matter what role you're in, in any organization or any part of, of the world, there's gonna be a whole number of stakeholders and constraints on you in any event. And so the scopes may be different or bigger, but there's still a whole lot of constraints at any level. And so to answer your question, I think it's about your mindset and what you're trying to achieve. So Vice President of Operations, you can achieve a lot, but you can also achieve not a lot, depending on your mindset and how you wanna go about doing things. And I think that applies equally to everybody in any role. There's a certain expectation on any role. And I think what's incumbent on people is to say, there's the expectation and here's what I could do beyond that. And that's where the growth happens and that's where the satisfaction can come, in my view, is in, in taking things, reforming them and achieving even more. And that can be done at any level or any scale. And I think that's the common thread. So this is around 2021 now. History will show that you left this very senior job at BHP and chose to found a startup. Why was this the right time for you to make that transition? Multiple reasons. Uh, the, the first one was COVID. So I was in a role that had a very dispersed team, large and dispersed team. And one of the things about leadership is you need to be physically with people from time to time for, to be able to be effective. And that wasn't possible during COVID. And we'd moved to Wollongong, back to Wollongong actually from Queensland for family reasons a couple of years before that. And so there was a level of constraint, I guess, on how effective I could be. And similarly, I was increasingly conscious of my long run views of the climate uh, trajectory that we're on and how over 10 years of being very close to the facts and the mathematics of this, that we continue to drastically underperform the action that is actually required to resolve the problem. And so there used to be a, a great sign on the, the wall that used to say, if not you, then who? And if not now, then when? And it struck, you know, it struck me that that's an important motto set mm. to say externalising these problems and believing someone else is going to solve it is not always the case. And, and so I kind of arrived at the conclusion that there's probably a reason to be able to, to change um, gears here and change pathways and uh, why wouldn't I go grab that? So in leaving, I was very fortunate to have six months of what they call garden leave, so kind of a, a period of transition available to me where I could spend some time thinking and, and planning. And so I, I elected to use that time to say, I'd like to go and do something in, uh, in relation to the climate. Uh, and I'd like to now figure out how that, that really should play through. And that's what I spent my time doing. I'd be really keen to hear you know, as much details as we can squeeze into five minutes, what that journey was like actually taking this you know, big idea of, oh, I want to help solve the climate and ending up yeah. at green gravity. Because yeah. there's so many different ways you can there take There is so that. many, there is so many. And I'm, I tend to be an analytical type of person, but I, I was very deliberate about spending the first couple of months thinking and talking, reading and learning and not getting particularly into the detail about what it is I should do, but continuing to explore the why. So why am I doing this and how do I understand the environment that I'm trying to step into because I'm stepping out of a certain context into another one and I shouldn't pretend that I'm an expert and absolutely learnt a series of new things. And that actually definitively ended up being uh, driving green gravity. And, and some of those things that I, I learned, firstly, uh, what was happening to the investment climate for renewable energy in Australia. While I was broadly 
aware of a variety of the trends and things going on. I hadn't really spent any time with renewables developers understanding the detail. And what I really quickly learned in 2021 was there was a dreadful problem with getting solar plants up and away. And I was speaking to some guys who had built a plant and they were sitting on this large amount of capital invested and they couldn't turn the plant on. And they, they, they basically were losing a huge amount of money. And in understanding why it got really interesting because I then realized that the price of electricity in the middle of the day had been driven down to negative territory, which I hadn't been aware of. And that, that clearly damages the ability to sell something when your price is negative. So I learned about that and therefore the disruptive effect that was logical but playing through much quicker than I realized in terms of the volatility and price in the electricity system. And, and that really then got me on the hunt to understand well, what, you know, what could be done about that and what is clear is that you need to change the production profile of the electricity and increasingly that's a bigger and bigger problem. And there are very, very few options to do that. So that was a problem. Um, the other problem just quickly that I, I found uh, out about was um, in reading widely, I read about some work from Monash University that had, I thought made wild outlandish claims that there was 96,000 legacy mines in Australia. And I found that to be very challenging to understand. How could there be so many? And uh, so I actually approached the guys at Monash and spent some time with them and realised that the work was excellent piece of work and indeed did represent a reality for the country that we have vastly more legacy, unrehabilitated legacy assets around the country than, than any of us think. And, mm. and that got me thinking, well, what, what are we doing? Why would we sit here with all of this infrastructure doing nothing mm. at a time when we're consuming resources and yet there's these resources sitting there idle? And so... That also got me thinking about what, how would we might bring these two issues together, energy storage and legacy assets, and that kind of set the path. I think you've set up the next question perfectly, Mark, which is give us the pitch about green gravity and, and how you brought these two disparate problems together. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. So green gravity uh, is the solution to these two problems. And our technology, very briefly, is about something we call gravitational energy storage. And that really is where we lift heavy objects up through the Earth's gravitational field to mm -hmm. consume electricity. And then we lower them back down again at a later time to reproduce that electricity. And in doing so, we create an energy storage effect, which is essentially a production shifts the electricity generation. And therefore, we can do something like take solar. We can lift heavy objects up through a vertical height in the middle of the day. We can lower them back down again in the evening, thereby taking the solar and reproducing it at night. The maths of that is normally very simple. It's mass times height gets mm -hmm. you amount of energy. And so you're incentivized in that to increase the mass and increase the height. And I got deeply thinking, where, where could we get lots of height? Yeah. Big buildings, you know, big cliffs and, and so forth. But they're, they're challenging to use in some cases, but that then got me right back to these mines. Well, in a mine, what have you really done? You've dug a hole. And in many cases, it's a very deep hole. And so a mine shaft is an ideal environment to be able to use because it attracts such great height. Just here in the Illawarra, there's, there's dozens of legacy mines right here in the escarpment. And the average depth of those shafts, they're deeper than Sydney Tower is tall. So they're really deep holes. And so now when you're looking for something that's really deep, what, what better place to start? So as you can probably tell already, Mark is an incredibly ambitious and diligent founder, and it's easy to forget it's only been about two years since Green Gravity was founded. 
In that time, Mark has made major strides building his team, the foundations of his technology, completing two rounds of fundraising, and engaging government, mine sites, media, venture capital, and academic stakeholders into his mission and vision. It's a rate of progress that sets Mark apart from a lot of academic founders and indeed most of the startup community, which are often young first-time entrepreneurs. With that in mind, I was interested to ask Mark who he viewed as his peers in this endeavor. Were those other startup founders or was Mark comparing himself to the incumbent players in the global energy market? Yeah, yeah, I, I, that's a, it's an excellent question. Naturally, I view the peers in the, in the status of the, the broader market leaders in the energy space, actually, and the commercializing technologies that are kind of not in startup phase, they're in scale-up phase or, um, or have been around a while. We naturally see them as the peers. That's really just coming at it from a mechanistic, how are we entering the market and where are the points of competition? But it also comes from the fact that myself, I'm coming to it with a, with a deep experience base mm. and I've accumulated a team with a deep experience base. So we also are somewhat of an unusual complexion for a startup. So yeah, I, I don't typically look to other startups necessarily as the peer base, although they are in, a, in very much in one dimension, but so are the, the larger energy companies that we also see ourselves peering up with pretty quickly and overtaking in some cases pretty quickly. Yeah, and I guess as an experienced business leader, do you feel like you have faced the same startup challenges that often get talked about, about you know, HR systems and accounting and all that kind of stuff, or did it flow quite naturally because you had lived it before? Yeah, a lot of the organisational items flowed very quickly and easily because I had to navigate those at various levels of scale previously. And by the way, I think the world is offering up amazing opportunities and solutions to those problems that are easily accessible to everybody if you know where to look. And so I think a lot of that internal organisational stuff hasn't been the hugest challenge for us. Um, some of the external stuff is a challenge as it is for any, any startup who's trying to move quickly. And that can be from regulatory to sourcing funding to finding customers, finding demonstration locations. And we've got a particularly challenging environment because while we're on a, an excellent thematic being trying to tackle climate change and clean energy, um, we are very capital intensive and we've got a long pathway to revenue. And so that's unattractive to many funders. <laughs> and so we've had to really work hard at that. And my longer experience base and heavy connections have helped in that. And I don't know how easy it would have been for people without that experience and connections to navigate this issue. I think it's very, very challenging. So I do think I've, we've had a natural advantage in that area, which has really been borne out. And so I guess what has been your, your fundraising journey to date? Where have you pitched and how's that going? Well, uh, we've pitched high and wide, uh, <laughs> but we've got more to go. And uh, so we really started with a deep base of connections of people who wanted to and were comfortable in backing myself and the concept. And so we raised uh, several million dollars from largely friends and family or ex-colleagues and some institutions purely on the concept and, and a confidence. So that, that was extremely helpful and instrumental. The second group I'd say that we've then tapped over time, which has been really profound, has been our collaborating partners, suppliers, customers, and so forth, who are closer and closer to the concept, can see the issue, and are willing to back it. And, and that's been an important source of, of funding and support. And then we've been pitching extensively to the venture fund community and also to the scale-up category of, of organisation. Yeah. And, and that's somewhat counterintuitive, but it is on the basis that it won't be long before we need really serious funds. 
in the billions. Mm. And my theory is if I, if I need a couple of billion dollar check, that isn't going to happen with five minutes of conversation. That's going to happen through having built the right relationship over an extended period with the right context and transparency. Mm. And so we've been building those relationships from very early and that's going beautifully. Um, that intervening period where we really need to be venture funded for a couple more years, um, that is a challenging conversation and we speak to a lot of different venture funds and there's so many out there. And what I've learned on that is you have to find the funds with the right specific risk appetite that mm. suits what you're trying to put forward. And there's a, there's a lot of different risk appetite categories out there and, and you've got to go find the ones with the right appetite. And there's no kind of yellow pages to, to look up it's actually one through experience of talking with a whole pile of venture funds and they'll say yes or no. And if it's a no, quite often they'll say, but you should talk to that person mm. over there. And so it's about relationship set that just takes time. And you've recently opened what's called the Gravity Lab here and in association with your old employer, Bluescope, out at their sites. Clearly there's some R&D and development that's still happening on this technology. Can you tell us about the Gravity Lab and what you're trying to accomplish there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the Gravity Lab is, I think, outright the most advanced facility of its kind in the world at this point in time. So we're really excited by it. And it is yielding a whole series of R&D learnings that are helping us further fine tune how we're going to approach the market, how we're going to accelerate our commercial product to market. And its purpose is, is very specific and quite thin, actually. Its purpose is around giving us a platform to validate our control systems because we need to move a whole series of mechanical items in sequence and we can model that but we also need to train those models to make sure that we're representing reality so we've got a controlled environment where we can do that secondly it's there to help us experiment and validate our electrical product and then finally it is a product development test bed for us to be able to calibrate its digital twins at a variety of scales and to conduct a series of experimentation over the next 12 months which will involve validating areas of commercial design and validating modelled outcomes to verify we're comfortable with them. So that's the purpose of Gravity Lab. It is one platform of our validation exercise and getting to market. The second one of those will be an in-shaft, in-mine uh, demonstrator uh, at a larger scale, uh, which is planned at the moment for quarter one next year. And uh, we're well advanced on, on preparing to announce and execute that. Uh, that will form an important validation of other subsystems. Our technology involves a whole series of subsystems. If we're testing some of the Gravity Lab, we're going to test others in the Mineshaft Demonstrator. And then the remainder residual technology development is occurring in a full-scale digital environment uh, where we've got a, a scaled-up digital replica of a commercial system and we're, we're building out the engineering in very, very fine detail of that. And we've drilled some Mineshafts in the Omniverse and we've done a variety of things. And that'll take a course of another six or 12 months to really get us to where we want to be uh, around being able to commercialize the technology. And then the final bit I'd say, which is really important for our technology development is everything other than the core technology, uh, which is how do you approach the regulators? How do you deal with water? How do you deal with geotechnical stability? All of these other things. And we need sites to be able to go and do those studies. And pleasingly, we've got partners, including Jan Collin, uh, who are providing site access to us to be able to answer those questions in a really well-grounded fashion which means that while we're absorbing a, a bunch of development risk, we're orchestrating all of these things almost concurrently, which brings forward the point of commercialization, which is quite important because the market opportunity is there now and we want to get into that market. So as you've said, Mark, you're doing a lot of things in parallel in order to get this technology to market as quickly as possible. And I'm sure that's some of your old operations experience coming out. 
putting your project management hat on, what is the critical path for green gravity? Those pieces of the puzzle that are gonna hold everything up if you don't get them right. Uh, we, we need to start moving mass in a mine shaft. I'd say that's, that's a critical path item. And then I think we need to get the regulators comfortable in whichever jurisdiction we're ultimately going to be really accelerating in, and it'll be multiple, we need to get the regulators and the investors comfortable that the scaled up product services the customer need and can navigate the various regulatory needs, whether they're mining or, or electricity. Yeah, well, you mentioned regulation there, and I think that's a good time to take a step back because we've talked about the technology that you are developing internally within Green Gravity, but this also needs to plug into a larger electricity grid and a whole bunch of legacy infrastructure that's there. How ready are market operators like AEMO in Australia to accept this innovative technology as part of a renewed grid? Well, everything I can see is they're pretty ready. And, and so we've had really good engagement with them so far. We, we held back specifically with AMO till, uh, till not that long ago, and we did that in so that we'd be more tangible in the conversations. I mean, it's very easy to have an intellectual conversation with people, and it goes really well. Um, but often, when you really want to get something done, you've got to have a here's the location, here's the specifics, and, you know, and now let's talk. And um, while we don't have all the answers, I'd say I feel like the environment is fairly change ready by necessity, as it is in other jurisdictions, and we're we're um, having extensive conversations in other jurisdictions, including in India, including in Eastern Europe, uh, where, where I also think those, those markets are very change ready. And, and it's up to us to, to bring forward the change in a way that can be consumed. We think that the pathway there is through high fidelity digital twinning and digital modeling so that we can bring technology to bear and that I can show up at our first commercial FID with a million operating years on a digital site already done. And, and we can see that's possible and we're already into generation two of the design right now and we'll be at generation three within a few months, I'm sure. It's really exciting to talk about those fast technology development cycles with digital and it would be remiss of me not to talk about university collaboration oh, here, yeah. because a big theme of this podcast is in research translation and the knowledge exchange between university and industry. How do you go about engaging university and academic minds into these projects when you've sat on the industry side most of your career? Yeah, I, I think that most of my career, my observation has been it's really challenging to get industry and academia to find common ground. And that's been my experience over the past. And, and they work at different types of problems and they work at different time horizons and different angles on commerciality. And that, that provides real challenge. Saying that, we've been much more successful in green gravity than, than I ever was at BHP at creating these kind of alliances. And we've had a really strong alliance with the University of Wollongong since the absolute inception, since before we actually launched the, the brand publicly. Um, I first had meetings at the university months before we had decided, we elected to actually launch. Uh, we'd formed the company and were working, but we hadn't um, gone public with it yet. And that included multi-pronged conversations uh, from the Australian Power Quality Research Institute through to talking about policy implications in the Energy Futures Network through to working on thinking through materials technology. So we've got multilateral conversation with the university since the earliest time. And I feel like what that's done is it built a great base of relationship and 
we've been able to bring something to the university in our own small way and the university certainly brought stuff to us and I think that's just going to continue to bode well for the future and I can see so many angles where we can work together whether that's through things like designing up our scale-up manufacturing footprint which we're going to have to have a really important role in our own supply chain at enabling it and there's a lot of work to do there. We've done multiple consultancy packages with the university as well that have yielded tangible good results in good timeframes. Yeah. Uh, examples, we did a, a very good quality study on materials options for our weighted objects. We did physical testing on a variety of products to understand bulk density options and so forth. So very, very valuable to us. The same with the, the Power Quality Institute around how should we think about grid integration for our form of technology, giving us guidance around really high-level packages of work around how do we think about those and go do those ourselves as well. So those are tangible deliverables and, and we'll, we've got more to go for mm. sure. And looking forwards for Green Gravity, I mean, you're obviously talking about a pretty rapid growth journey still to come. What do you see as the next horizons, the next pain points for you? Yeah, I'm really excited by the pace we've got going. And in fact, I'd say we are working more effectively and faster now than at any point. I don't know how we, we measure you know, cumulative intellectual property, but it's, it's doubling and doubling again very rapidly at the moment. We're bedding down really core systems and we've been very deliberate about saying the way we build our systems and our, our team is for scale. Mm. So that when we get to scaling points, we don't have to re-engineer the organisation, which is a common problem. And so we'll be able to move much more quickly through those. And that's absolutely imperative because the nature of the market is absolutely enormous and it is moving at pace. And so there's a huge opportunity there that needs to be grabbed. So I'd say, where are we going to face challenges? We are going to face challenges in our supply chain capability. We're going to face challenges in our resourcing. I don't really think it's necessarily a funding problem in a couple of years' time. I think it's more about how we concurrently run a lot more projects, how we engage in different markets concurrently, and how we step up that supply chain, which is going to need us to manufacture and deliver substantial quantities of bits. And a final question, which I ask all of our guests, is what advice do you think you would give to a young entrepreneurially minded, I would usually say researcher, but perhaps in your case, just a, an engineer or you know, a cadet? And do you think this pathway first through industry and then to entrepreneurship is perhaps more fertile than going an academic to industry route? I don't know about more fertile. It's certainly fertile. Um, I think both are very equally reasonable pathways. My advice to anybody who's contemplating this is no matter where you are and what role you're in, whether it's in academia or whether it's in a role in a business, the first thing to think about is how do you do more yourself right now? How do you deliver more with what you have at your disposal? And that's going to train yourself. It's going to train yourself to be more creative and deliver more and be able to do more. And when, when you get to a natural point where you now want to go and do something even bigger and it might be unshackle yourself from where you are and be an entrepreneur or whatever you're going to do, think about your own skills, think about your networks and think about how you can take that effectiveness and really power on because the opportunities there, uh, what I found is there's always a big support network. And no matter what stage you're at, people want to help. People respect people who have a go. I think they do. And and as a result, there's more, more people out there that will be willing to say yes and willing to go, I'll give you a hand, than you actually think there is. So don't be shy to ask. Fantastic. That's a lovely place to leave it, Mark. Thank you for joining us on the Lab Notes podcast. Thank you, Leo. Very enjoyable. Appreciate it. Well, that's all from Lab Notes today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, you can always check out the episode description for our guest biography and links to all of the organizations mentioned in today's episode. 
Lab Notes is a production of Eon Labs with music sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Dr. Nat Harris. If you've liked today's episode, don't forget you can subscribe to get new episodes in your feed and check out our back catalogue for any interviews you might have missed. But that's all for now, so until next time, keep inventing.